here today. Uh, one thing that I'll tell you I'm grateful for every day is being married. Not just because I love my wife. Oh no, I'm getting emotional on the first thing I'm saying. I do love her a lot, but I also hated dating. I don't like dating. I'm not the dating guy. Uh, I wasn't good at it. And uh, in fact, I only have dated two girls in my life and I married one of them. So I marry 50% of my girlfriends. It's a very high ratio. Uh, and uh, I think it's just, it's awkward. And I, I don't know when, what's the worst era to be in. Like for me, it was like you would text if your parents paid for it on your phone because uh, back then it wasn't free or you would email. I asked a girl out through email <laughs> and she said yes. And we dated for a year. So that's, I know, email. Yeah, my email was littlewhitesambo at aol.com. If you're wondering what romantic thing I went with. Um, I didn't realize it was racist when I did it. I do apologize. Uh, I don't know if we thought of those things so much back then. Although I, I don't know, but now people are dating on apps a lot or social media. And so if you are, if you're out there, you know, as it were, your social media bio or the things you post, you're trying to give someone an idea of who you are in a very short amount of time. And I don't know if it's worse. To, I mean, how do you sum yourself up in a paragraph? Uh, I don't think it's possible, which is why Tinder is probably a nightmare. And I am just glad that I'm married and that Tinder is not an app I have to keep on my phone. Um, though, however, I do, I found what I do believe to be the worst era to date in based on what I'm gonna show you today. I think it was the 1980s and maybe the early 90s. And it was because there was no dating service and what they had was Betamax. You would subscribe to a service and people, the singles in your local area would do it like an interview and then you would get the tape and you'd put it in and it was like mail order boyfriend. Um, I wanna show you uh, that video quick. Jason, you said you don't count on you to remember the volume, so we're reminding you now. I'm with you 100%, buddy. All right, so let's watch this video real quick. Hello, 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 hello. These are all real. Thought I told you never to call me here. <laughs> Some of the things I love are photography, travel, skiing, and cuddling. This is a very exciting time for my life because I'm just starting a new claims adjusting business. I don't know, the type of girl that I'm looking for is one that's really attractive to me. I like an attractive woman, someone who might look like Christy Brinkley or Jacqueline Smith. I have a very strong sense of humor. I've read recently that everyone thinks they've got one, but my friends do agree that I do. Might not appear it, but um, semi-crazy. Uh, kind of your Typical research mathematician, I guess. I'm a ham. I've been on Jeopardy. I decided that I'm lonely. Hello, hello, hello. We all agree that uh, he probably is. In fact, I have to say, if any one of those was interesting enough to you, I will help you find them because there's about a hundred percent chance they're still single. Uh, and you know, I have to confirm that guy said his friend said he was funny. That was hysterical. He is so funny. Uh, I gotta say, in their defense though, they were asked probably, I'm guessing by their answers, the most complicated question in the world. Tell me about yourself. How do you sum yourself up quickly? What makes you, you? It's very difficult. And you'll notice something specific about their answers. Now we take it for granted because we're actually from the same culture they're from. 
You see, we're Westerners. I'm going to talk today about Western and Eastern. And what Western means isn't cowboys, boots, spurs, and guns. It's any culture that really comes out of Europe. So it's going to be Europe, North America, Australia, places like that. They, where we are Westerners. We have Western ideas of the world. And they answer it like a Westerner. They answer it with, with sort of a question of what? Tell us about yourself. And they're giving details that set them apart from the crowd. Now, we say that all the time. If someone's going to ask me, tell me about yourself, uh, I will start to highlight the things about myself that are odd, weird. I'm in a new pastor cohort where we get all on Zoom and we're, we're learning how to do this all together. So it's me and a whole bunch of other young and scared people. And uh, when they ask, tell me about yourself, one of the details that got highlighted, I realized as I was answering, is that I've been at this church uh, since I was a child which is very uncommon in Foursquare. There's not many lead pastors that are appointed at churches they attended uh, for so long. And so uh, you, you just, that's the way we answer this question. What defines me are the unique properties and things about myself that make me stand out from the crowd. Uh, like being a research mathematician slash barbarian, I don't think any of us fit that. He's one of a kind. Have you ever heard the terms, though, collectivism and individualism? I know that they, those, those sound really big and it sounds complicated. You actually are already familiar with it, and uh, you live in it every day. We can misinterpret the idea of what is Western individualism and Eastern collectivism by thinking it means selfishness or, or self-centeredness or selflessness, but that's not what they mean at all. What it really comes down to is how does one think of themselves and define themselves? Is it what makes them stand out from the crowd or is it to which crowd do they belong? You'll see in scripture all the time, someone will say, well, who are you? And they'll say, I'm so-and-so son of such and such of such and such tribe of such and such people and I worship such and such God. They're giving details as to which collective represents who they are. Jesus teaches and people ask him, by whose authority do you say these things? For years, I misinterpreted what that was. I thought they were just trying to make him look bad. And you're like, oh, who are you to tell us what to do? But they're literally asking him, which group do you come from? Because they didn't, in their culture, respect an individual opinion. They needed to know what collective he was from. Which school of rabbis are you from? To which synagogue do you come from? Which people, which city? Is it an honorable city? Is it a good teacher? Do you come from who you were and how you'd be respected and received had entirely to do with to whom did you belong? And if you remember, Jesus' answer to that was, is, well, you tell me who was John's baptism by? And they were afraid to answer because if they said it was of God, they would have confirmed his point that his authority is in heaven. And if they were to say it was of man, they would have gotten attacked by the crowd. So they just say, we don't know. And he says that I won't tell you. Because the collective, Jesus plays by the same game. His authority isn't simply in the fact that he's Jesus. He saw that his authority came from, I am from the heavenly host. I am God, and I am one with the Father. That is where my authority comes from. And so it's a very different way of seeing things. We feel what sets us apart makes us us. And the rest of the world, let's say it's what crowd we are with. Now, I would say that when we look at this, we have to recognize Western individualism is not immoral. It is not immoral. There's nothing immoral to say that um, 
what sets us apart is also something that defines us. It's a perfectly fine way to see the world, but we should understand a few things about it. Individualism has its uh, strengths and weaknesses. For us and Westerners, we do a lot better job and we're far more comfortable being bold and standing up for what we think is right when everyone disagrees with us. That is a major taboo you will not see very much in other portions of the world. And in fact, collectivism has this very negative thing that if the crowd says it's okay, to people it literally becomes okay. That sense of guilt you feel of like, I know this is wrong, but we're all doing it anyway, that actually doesn't exist if you're seeped in collectivism. It's a very interesting impact. I know it's hard for us to imagine because we live in the United States. And strengths and weaknesses go both ways. Collectivism is far better at protecting the group interest and looking at other people. It lends itself more to caring for the poor and the oppressed because everybody is you and you are everybody. So they both have strengths and weaknesses. And I would say the best thing to do would be to find a balance of the both. And really, Jesus taught in such a way that frustrates both groups because he did attempt to strike a balance. He told people that they needed to follow God to such a degree that if their mother and father and their family and all their kin turned against him, they would still follow God. That is gravel in the teeth of collectivism. It's a very painful thing to hear that teaching. He also instructed us to take a group approach in convicting people of sin. That if someone in our midst is at sin, it's not just a thing of, well, we could confront them, but actually they are us. They pollute our group. They can pull the entire group in a negative direction. And it is the group's responsibility to go one, they don't hear that person, then two, three, the group comes and then you push them out of the group if it gets ugly enough. He did teach a balance. Our Lord told us to not be swayed by the group And he also told us to remain in the group and feel kinship with others. He wants us to be balanced. And that's an important thing for us to understand because here's an interesting thing. Did you know that Americans, American culture, is the most individualistic culture in human history? The absolute most. We are are way over here. I, I mean, honestly, it's like in our individualism, we're individualists. Like we stand out from other individualists. We are super individualists. It shows up in all kinds of ways. It shows up in the way that we tell stories. Every society is going to reveal a lot about themselves in the stories they tell. How they think, what matters to them, what are their moral guidelines, the the bumpers and the banks of the river that guide them along the way. And we show very strongly our individualism in how we tell stories that uh, in Disney, and every Disney story, it seems the moral of the story is, is follow your heart, do what you know what is right on the inside. If people want you to do something else, but you really just feel passion for this, it is a good and moral pursuit to pursue that thing and to find who you really are and let your heart guide you from within. You can spot the hero in an American story very quickly because they are always the most self-willed. We do not like people who uh, go along with the group. It is extremely strong. So I guess we have to ask ourselves, if we're that far in, if we're really, really far in, might we do well to try to balance? Is it possible that there is more we than me in the way that we see both ourselves, the church community, Sandy around us, Oregon, 
our country, the world? Are we forgetting that there is, in fact, still a collective nature to society, to human society, to be human? And I'll tell you this, Scripture is it's great at tempering this, which is why, surprise, surprise, the pastor is going to use Scripture today. But it's like uh, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, high school, I'd be at my friend's house. We'd all go in the basement. I don't know why high school boys don't like daylight. We'd go into the basement. We'd be down there uh, playing games, watching shows, doing stuff. And his sisters would come in and they would just be like, like someone punched him. They just, oh, this room stinks of boy, they would say. And we're like, oh, they're so dramatic. And you just keep doing our thing. And, and it wouldn't occur to you until one of us would like go outside and get something out of a car and come back in and it hits you like a sledgehammer. You're like, this isn't stink. This is wickedness that we have done in here. We've defiled the drywall. It is not suitable for human life in this room anymore. We could open the windows and it would not be done until Christmas. It would be, it was bad. You, but the thing is, is you were sitting there just, it was you. Like, you're all just in there. You couldn't tell. We were just happy and stinky, but when you go out, you come back in, you can see who you are. It's very much that way uh, with Scripture. Hebrew culture is collectivist. Did you know that? They see everything collectively. Uh, the Old Testament, New Testament, it's not our culture. So we read it, and it's like, it's like travel. PBS has this saying on the travel specials, the greatest, what is it, the greatest uh, um, keepsake of travel, whatever you want to say. The memento of travel is a broadened perspective. And it's kind of true. You go somewhere else, you see how somebody else does it, and when you come back, like coming back to your own place, you can see how you do things. Not to forsake it and not to get rid of it, but you have a broader perspective on your own life from having gone out, coming back in, and you can temper things a little differently. So it is with reading Scripture. Ancient Scripture is very much like travel. We are traveling back to centuries ago to a culture that did not speak our language, that didn't think like we think. And it's good to read what they wrote about and to come back to our own world and to see it. I really do think, for all the people that say Scripture loses its relativeness or its, its connection to our lives with time, I don't believe that at all. I think there are some things that make Scripture more relevant in the year 2022 because it is so foreign. And that as we read it, it, it pushes against our own culture. And it allows us to temper and balance in a whole new way. Still this eternal word, but it ministers in a fresh and new way over time. So I want to read uh, the story of the creation of man today. And uh, I'll pick that up. <sighs> Sorry about that. Back at it. All right. Creation of man. We're going to be in a, a Genesis 1. We're going to start in, chapter, in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humanity 
is made, the first thing it says about its creation, made in the image of God. Made, modeled after, copying, having attributes, being of, and being like God. And what's interesting is you'll notice the tense that it says, let us, the Trinity speaking to itself, let us make them, not him, let us make them in our image. God is the proto-community. Before he created angels and the heavenly hosts, all of creation, all of humanity, there was before time one that was three. And in him is the beginning of all creation. Everything modeled after him, and it is a community that begins everything, the community of God within himself. He is in us, and we are a them, made after God to be like him, that the nature of who we are to the core of who we are cannot be separated from the fact that we are created to be a community. The Land Act of 19, or 1820 was interesting. The U.S. put together this idea that would encourage pioneers further into America's heartland. So they came up with this idea that you could stake a claim for 160 acres for free. Uh, and uh, that would be amazing. If they did that in Oregon right now, I'd take it, wouldn't you? Uh, you had to live there. Here's the deal, though. You had to live there for five years to get the claim. So you couldn't just claim it stay in New York and then just wait for like a railroad to be built or something. You had to go and live there. They wanted people to move out west, get there before uh, everyone else does. So they're pushing people out. You had to live there for five years and they found that an overwhelming amount of people failed. I mean, we're talking 160 free acres in what could be Columbus, Ohio these days. You could have owned 160 acres of that in your family lineage had only they stayed, they found that a lot of people left over what was called prairie sickness. Prairie sickness was an incredible deep depression brought on by just completely overwhelming loneliness. And so people failed on their land claims. They lost their property. They moved back east where they saw other people because these were not um, towns. The nearest town would be days travels away. These were farmsteads. You were going to eat everything you grew. You were going to live on them. And people found themselves to be suffering a prairie sickness. Now, historians have looked at which property steads survived and did well. The, the people that went and actually did it, stuck out the five years, lived there, kept it. And as they analyzed the properties and where they were, they were wondering, is it sunlight? Was it proximity to water? Like, what is causing this? They found that the people that succeeded were more likely to build their homes in the corners of the properties so that they were close to each other. The closer the homes were to each other, the more likely that the people staking a land claim remained there for five years and inherited the land. I think it's a beautiful picture of showing us that we can't do the basics without a community. God said, go forth, multiply, subdue the land. And those that attempted to do God's will but put their house in the middle of the property so they could have their wealth surrounding them at the best and they were all alone, they failed. And it was those that did it together that succeeded. That to do the very thing that God calls us to do from the, the root of the human calling up to the highest, each one of us in here has things that is a calling that is specific to you. We have general ones, of course, that were called to expand the kingdom, to, to inherit all that God has for us, to praise his name, but there's anointings and giftings in this place. 
And from the bottom call to go and subdue the earth to the top specific call that you have based on that anointing, you cannot do that alone. You are not meant to do it alone. You are not called to do it alone. You are not called to you to go do it. It was a them to go do it. It requires community and living with people. We fulfill our purpose only when we are in a community. We're going to move on to chapter 2 where it speaks a little bit more on the creation of man. Don't be thrown by the fact that, he, that the story is a little out of sync. We just read about all of humanity created together. Uh, let's talk about the creation of Eve. So we're going back, flashback. We're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man. Uh, oh, you know what? I start, I'm starting too late, and it might not be on there. I'm going to start in 18, and I am sorry, everyone, but it begins this way. The Lord says this in verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, uh, the man called each of the living creatures, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and the wild animals. I, I mean, we don't know what he named them. Like, he's clearly a hippopotamus. That's Greek. I would love to know what he named them. Uh, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up his side with flesh. And the Lord made woman from his rib, uh, from, from the rib uh, he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I think it's remarkable. The first thing, there's, there's, there's man's calling, yes. They're called to do this thing. But the first note ever made on the nature and the need of humanity and the need of mankind was a statement, it is not good to be alone. It is not right. It is not suitable. It is not what Adam is created to be. And this advice is still true for us today. It won't go well with you in any endeavor you do if you intend to do it alone. You can't grow spiritually well alone. I've seen a lot of people that uh, leave the church that go for a smaller approach, especially, uh, I would warn you against this, the a la carte approach to Christianity, where we pick this podcast and this person, but we don't engage in a community because it allows us to isolate and to pick and to make a monster of our faith instead of the rounded thing it is. I wish I could go into how I think that works and spend a week studying it so I could talk about it more in detail. Probably the only thing worth highlighting today is remain in community. You're not going to heal well from pain alone. You're not going to recover from addiction well alone. And though we are not like Adam and that we are literally alone on the face of the planet, we can be surrounded with people and it's like that old poem, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. We will not engage. We don't share enough. We keep too many secrets and we live with too many words being unsaid to the relationships around us that are supposed to be deep. And we decide to avoid people, to remain home, to not go. And we think we're choosing safety with isolation, not realizing we're choosing the first threat to humanity. We're talking pre-sin. 
It is not good for man to be alone. The first thing to threaten the nature of humanity before sin was loneliness itself, loneliness and isolation, choosing not to engage, to not share anymore. You're picking the first danger that our species was ever faced with. Do not choose loneliness. It is not good for us to be alone. So why does Adam name the animals? It's a very interesting little object lesson God puts him in because God knows. He just said to himself, it is not good for man to be alone. I suppose it was really important for man to know it is not good for man to be alone. Community is hard. It is hard. And Adam, like us, he needs to know how hard it is to be alone. Because uh, if we were to read on today, and we're not going to go through the fall today, but as we go through the fall of man, we see that their relationship becomes very difficult. One of the things that's the curse is that they will no longer be the, the beautiful co-equal understanding loving relationship they were, that there's going to be strife. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. The start of chauvinism and striving and difficulty It is going to be difficult, but Adam needs to remember that it is not good to be alone, something he needs to know. You should know that you're not deficient, that you're not weak, that you need the community. That's something that if in our staunch individualism, that way over the top cowboy American individualism would make us think that you should be able to do it all on your own and you ask for help when you're a weak little piece of crap. <laughs> That is not at all true. You could be a perfect being, pre-sin. Everything's fine with you. It is not good for you to be alone. Let that be one of the tempering things of Scripture. The tempers are American mind that we would realize that asking for help, engaging in the community, helping others and getting help yourself is no sign of weakness because it was there before anyone ever screwed anything up. We need to lean on the group because to be human means to do it together. Adam says something odd, doesn't he? Sees his wife for the first time, says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Um, I've heard people joke around about this, like, oh, what a romancer Adam is. But this is one of the areas where we can get a little, we need to remember that this is not our culture. What did this mean to them? This was a very profound and deep statement. That the first thing human says when it goes from human to humanity when the collective was born, is I am we. It's a powerful thing. This isn't, a, this isn't necessarily meant to be interpreted as romance, marriage. It is this moment in Adam's life where he says to himself, I thought I was a creation. I thought I was a creation all by myself, but I was wrong. Now that I see you, now that I know you, we are a creation. We are. Adam is converted in this moment from inborn, staunch individualism to an awareness of the collective, an awareness of others around him, that there is a nature to where I am not just Adam. We are Adam. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. We are the same. And his creation as human becomes complete. The kingdom of God is a community. From creation through redemption, we are not complete in our calling 
unless we understand human is humanity, that there is a collective nature to it. We cannot do this faith walk without gathering with other believers to do so. Whether this becomes home churches, whether it becomes a church like ours, where it's a more traditional church, we have to be with other believers to do this at all. It is not good for humanity to be alone. We could translate this as, it is not good for Christians to be alone. Do not be alone. Community happens when we meet other people's needs and when we make our needs known in that reciprocity. Community happens when we decide to do something very frightening and choose to be vulnerable. Because you can be sitting right next to someone, even talking to them, and still be in howling loneliness because you're refusing to be vulnerable. I've been at times where I'm in a horrible mood and I'm very upset, could be depressed, scared, frightened, angry. And I will have the exact identical conversation to someone in a customer service spot. They're checking out my groceries. It could be my wonderful birthday. It could be the worst day of my life. I'm doing fine. How are you? That's how we talk. Do not do that in the church. Vulnerability is the gateway where we can really see each other. When we quit choosing loneliness that we're with other people, to go deeper with ourselves, we have to go further into the community. I think that's one area that our culture sets us up with confusion. If you're going to know who you are, you got to go do the walkabout. You got to go out by yourself. You got to get away from everybody else. You have to not listen to anyone and go find out who you are. And I'm sure that there are times when we have so many people in our head that we have to slow down and gather our thoughts and be alone. I think, long, I think getting alone can be a good thing. But you know as well as I, there's a difference between alone and loneliness. And there's a profound understanding that to go deeper within ourselves, it means that we have to also simultaneously go deeper with the community. To have tougher, more honest conversations with friends, family, and our church. To open up, to ask for prayer more often. To say what's going on in our lives. We go deeper into that we can find out more about who we're meant to be. And honestly, I have had times when I have gone from isolated to connected through text messages, phone calls, and even in email. It doesn't really matter what it is. What really matters is that moment that we decide, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step out and quit being so lonely. I'm gonna engage this community, this relationship and be open. And we can't let others be alone. Make it your goal that nobody goes unseen. That when we come here to church, if we see someone and it seems that they're new, we would love for them to be seen. We'd love for you to be seen. When you see people and they look like they're lonely, there's this line from a Christian song I loved when I was a kid that said, uh, loneliness has left me searching for someone to love. Let the memories of your own loneliness push you to find someone to be loving towards. Your own sort of naming the animals days when you counted the ways you were lonely. Let that advise you in how you care for other people. Some of the most affectionate people have spent some very lonely times and had someone really meet a need in their life. Listen deep and give more time. What I would love for us to do today is to have a moment before the Holy Spirit where we say, God, would you 
opened my eyes the way you opened Adam's eyes. When he switched from being uh, just a single person and seeing his calling to you and all you asked him to do as being for him. And when he had the eye-opening moment of flesh, of my flesh, bone of my bone, this person belongs to me. We are humanity. We are Adam. I believe that there is a balance of both that the Lord spoke of, that we can be individuals, but we need to be individuals that recognize that we are humanity, that we are all connected, and that we need one another, we need to engage one another, and others need you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we give you our full attention. We say, God, give us that kind of experience that you gave Adam. In the moment when he got more awakened, Lord, the, the things inside of us that have been like a, like a dam holding us back from going deeper with our relationships, Lord, would you lift that, that we would want it all the more. God, open our eyes to spiritually perceive the health that comes when we engage the community. When we talk to people, when we go deeper in our relationships. Lord, I pray for a special anointing over this church, Living Life Fellowship, that it would be a house of relationships. It would be a household of vulnerability. Let it be disarming, Lord, that this would be a place where people that felt they could never speak of those things feel the acceptance to speak of them here. Lord, I pray that it would be the end point of loneliness for individuals that walk into our doors. That it would end here. The testimonies would be spoken of here of when they opened up and began to connect. Lord, help us be humanity. Help us be the church. Help us be the collective of Living Way Fellowship. No remote organization, but that we are Living Way Fellowship. Be with us today, Lord, deep in our relationships with our families. Lord, I pray for the, the marriages in this room that there would be deeper conversation, more open understanding, Lord. Lord, I pray for the anointing to speak the words that have gone unspoken and help us trot out the things that need to be trotted out. Help us speak with our children, with our families and our friends all the better, deep in this community in Jesus' name. Amen.